This week on the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast, we're talking about Season 5, Episode 3, High Sparrow, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Mike Mylod. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, TV editor of Sound On Sight, and joined as ever by my wonderful co-host, general editor, general editor, editor-in-chief, Mr. Ricky D. Ricky, how's it going? I'm good, Kate. I really love this episode. I can't wait to talk about it. And joining us this week uh, is our games editor, Mike Warby. Mike, welcome back. Good day. Are you sure? You seem unconvinced. Me? Oh, yeah. It's a pretty good day, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's gloomy, but it's 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 generally a good day uh i'm alive and free in a country <laughs> so we'll just go with that hey well it's probably better uh whatever whatever gloomy day it is for you it's probably a better day than it is for sansa or or will be hey it's better than westeros right yeah better than westeros can we just give a quick shout out to uh with a a looming wedding for sansa and ramsey the fact that we get a like the least climactic and most relaxed wedding i guess other than rob uh, the the show's ever had this week. Well, at some point, I guess, um, eventually we have to have a wedding where not every, not the shit hits the fat. Yeah, just <laughs> eventually like, we have to have one. Law of averages, right? Yeah, the wedding planners in Westeros are like, finally, this is like just low key. You know, it's off screen. It's probably maybe that's the secret. If you're gonna get married in Westeros, get married off screen. Well, what do you mean off screen? Well, the wedding, it's not, it's on screen, but it's not a full big episode the way that the yeah. previous, you know, big weddings have been. It's, it's not as lavish yeah. as the purple wedding. It's not as deadly as the red wedding. Just, you know, keep it low key is the answer, basically. You know, still a wedding. I, I think, I think ideally you want to attract at the least amount of attention to your wedding at this point. Seems about right. Um, well, this week we'll be talking, in case somehow you guys couldn't tell, about Season 5, Episode 3, High Sparrow, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, and directed by uh, Mark Mylod. Um, I have read the books, though it's been a while, so I don't remember everything. Um, Ricky has not. Mike, what is your relationship with the Game of Thrones books? I read most of the first one. I had a hard time. I struggled with it a bit because it was so similar to the show. Uh, and I kind of knew everything that was coming, so uh, I never, I never really got into the other ones because I thought uh, I would, it would just confuse me because I heard after book one things get a lot different and it's hard enough keeping Westeros straight. So, yeah, a little bit of like most of book one is is what I've read. Okay, well, listeners, never you fear I will not be spoiling anything from the books. We will only be talking about uh, season, you know, everything that's come up to now and this week's episode of Game of Thrones. We will not spoil anything um, from next week's episode, which is, I believe, the last one that has screeners floating out there. So we can stop caveating that after next week. But uh, this week we're gonna we're gonna talk. Hi, Sparrow. We're going to talk uh, Arya and, and lots of other interesting developments. Um, but what I want to start with this week is what we don't see. And um, I I think it was a, a good move. I'm curious what you guys think. I really like that after the way that last week ended, we don't see Danny this week. I like that we get some time off from her. And I like that we 
they teased Dorn last week, and we got some feedback, by the way, from the listeners. Lovely hearing from you guys about Jamie's fabulous jacket. But we don't see Jamie or Braun either, so we keep Dorn out of it, we keep Danny out of it, and I think that gives us a little bit more time to focus on these other characters and to focus on all these different balls that are in play, and I think it was a good move. What do you think, Mike? Um, I, I think it's always it's it's often a nice a nice touch to give a little break with Danny because Danny's um storyline is for the most part disconnected from everyone else's and has a tendency to eat up a lot of screen time. And it hasn't been as interesting um the last couple seasons as it was in season three. So I think it's always good to take a little break from Danny. I could have used a little more Braun and Jamie, but that's okay. I can wait till next time. What do you think, Rick? Focus, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Focus. Last week, I used the word focused five or six times. This episode was focused. I totally agree. We did not need to see Danny. As much as we love Jamie and Braun, we did not need to see Jamie and Braun. We need to focus on these storylines, these new alliances, these specific characters. So this is the way to go. You know, we also do a podcast for The Walking Dead. And I don't. Wanna, I do not want to spend five minutes comparing The Walking Dead to Game of Thrones. But for... Two shows that have so many characters, Game of Thrones knows how to focus on these characters and make us, the viewers, care about each and every single one of them and know, to some degree, most of their names, even though it gets really confusing at times, whereas The Walking Dead can't. <laughs> so it's just crazy. Like, like I don't know. There's just so many people in this show, and yet week after week, somehow I find a way to write these reviews, even though sometimes I want to put a gun to my head and shoot myself because it is bloody hard. But um, yeah, I'm totally I think this is the best episode of the season so far. And any fears that I had, especially specifically after watching episode one, that I thought I felt that it wouldn't be as good of a, a season as, say, season four, season three. I think I no longer scared. I think uh, I think we have plenty of surprises to look forward to. And I think we're, we're <laughs> I can't wait for the next episode. I haven't watched the next episode yet, but I think it's going to be a game changer. I think in some ways this episode is a game changer. Well, you talk about all these characters, and there are a lot of them. So just putting a, a couple different sets of them to the side does work very well here. Um, but it doesn't stop them from introducing you know, a new one in a big way, and that's Jonathan Price as the High Sparrow. There looks like, you know, we'd already seen this in the season premiere, but it, it looks like with this episode they're committing to more focus on religion. Again, having Tyrion note the Red Priestess or, or Red Priest and the brothel as well. Um, are you guys interested in this, like, branch off sect i guess of the 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 new gods the the many faced the seven gods we also get a bit of a different thing take on religion with the house of black of white black and white um i was i was interested but i'm a little burned out on um religious talk from melisandre like that's been an ongoing storyline for a long time and i'm a little burned out on um like the, the this time with the the woman out in the crowd uh talking to all the people and Tyrion mocking her and stuff. I was a little, I was kind of not that into that scene. Um, and her magically looking at him when he's like, you know, talking crap or whatever. I was a little burned out on on the religion on the religion angle of, of Westeros at this point. So hopefully that that takes a good turn. But I'm a little burned out on the religion stuff. Um, I have something to say. So I don't know if it was last week or the week before I mentioned the actor, Jonathan Price, and I made a huge mistake in which I was asking if we had seen him before in the past. And I think it's because I got confused with maybe uh, one of those TV spots I saw online and or watching the episode and seeing someone in the background. In any case, this is why I got confused. 
Um, and Kate, we just talked about this off air, but this Jonathan Price is the High Sparrow. He is sort of like the Pope. And there was a character in the past, I could swear to God, High Septon, who was ripped to pieces during the riot in King's Landing. Was he not? Jonathan Price is not the High Septon. That's a different character. He okay, is, so that, yeah, okay. So that is, yeah, he's, he's a, a revered figure in this, like, sect or cult that are, they, that they call the Sparrows, which are, like, a extreme. He's more like a prophet, yeah, he, he's he's a leader amongst that group because, or he says that they make him the leader. It depends on whether you believe him or not. But no, he the, though you know it's it's like these um, extremes uh, branch off groups you'll find uh, in Christianity or in other religions where they go like super hardcore. Um, so it's, he's not the Pope for everyone in Westeros, uh, you know, or at least the, the high septon is that figure, but, um, and then we see the high septon here. He's the one who gets caught in the brothel. Right. But, but, okay. So, but the faith of seven is sort of the equivalent of the Catholic church in our, our world. It, I would say that I don't think there's a straight comparison because there's a much more complex mythology where there was a different religious, um, there was a different religion, the the old gods, right? And the, and the new is they say the old. I, I swear by the old gods and the new. The old gods are the gods uh, of the people who were there before. Um, we had um, a, I think his name what's his name Aegon or something. Who mm. la- and they landed and they took over Westeros basically, um, and they had the the new gods and those are the seven. But there seems to be, and a- that's that's who the Starks are still. Yeah, um, the Starks and the Northern families still follow the old gods though. Yeah, right. like the, with the the faces in the trees and stuff. That's the old gods, still. Yeah, right. But there still is a huge difference between Melisandre and her cult slash religion, mm-hmm. and the religion of the Faith of the Seven. Her religion really seems to revolve around black magic and voodoo, and their religion really seems to revolve around faith, like specifically believing in these seven gods. And in this case, the High Septon, he actually seems like a good person. Like he's actually helping these people who are struggling, who are in need, who are poor, who the- are. Uh, the High Sparrow, yes. The, the High, High Septon is the one who's having fun at the brothel. Uh, the High Sparrow is the one that's feeding the poor. Okay, so thank you for clearing up the confusion. All right. It's a lot now of terms. Lots of guys with beards. Right. <laughs> or and not then, beards in this case. But, but then, you see, we, okay, at least I, because I haven't read the book, I still do not have much knowledge of the House of Black and White, but I do understand that they believe in the one face god or the many face gods it's like there's one god but he has many faces mm-hmm. so they believe in one god whereas these people believe in seven gods yeah it seems like the way that they talk about it in this episode um the, the, the they would say that it's it's like the comparing to like the trinity you know the idea in christianity the idea of um god and the holy spirit and jesus all being three aspects of one being. Um, I think that's what they, what the house of black and white would say that it's the many faced God. So the, the warrior, the, the maiden, the mother, the stranger, these are all the same. They're just different aspects, different faces of the one God. And that's a slightly different take than of course, Melisandre says there's one God and it's fire. <laughs> Rilor, right. I can't, not sure how to pronounce it, but yeah, so it's, it's a different take here that we're getting. See, the thing is, I I think it's strange that Cersei seems overly concerned with his presence all of a sudden because she never came across as someone who even believed in any kind of religion, be it 
the faith of the seven and or whatever Milisans religion is called. We, we don't know the term. I'm interested to see where that storyline is going because I thought it was really odd. Like here she is last week. She's completely focused on Marjorie and the wedding and her son. And she, she clearly fears, you know, especially knowing that we had that very first and only flashback at the beginning of the season that someone's supposed to someone younger and more beautiful is supposed to take over her reign and control over King's landing and her three children would die. And it seems like, she thinks that it's Marjorie, although I don't think it's Marjorie. And in this episode, I I understand her strategy towards Marjorie and being kind to, to Marjorie. It's like, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. But I'm not entirely sure what her strategy is here in regards to the High Sparrow and and how it helps her. How does it benefit her in the long run? She's just making allies. Well, my Yeah, my interpretation of that was that with her power beginning to wane, um, I, I think she's looking for a new foothold of power and a new way of controlling people. And this guy has a lot of power, so she's kind of, yeah, I think she's re- realigning her deck, sort of. Well, he has a lot of power. a lot of her cards are kind of gone. Yeah, and he has a lot of power without actually having power, like in terms of, like, say, money and or being of royal family. He has power because people believe in this man because of their religion and because he's actually being kind and helping everyone else. So I'm just trying to figure out if the showrunners and the writers are, 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 are placing Cersei in a specific route in which they want us to viewers just to begin to sympathize for her character. I, I remember we had a huge argument way back in season four, when I was talking about Jamie, who's become like a fan favorite. I'm like, if you recall when the show first started on that very first episode, Jamie Lannister was not a good person. He was far from a good person. And now it's like everyone seems to root for Jamie Lannister and everyone sympathizes for his character. And I'm wondering if they, they are doing the exact same thing with his sister now. And if so, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it because I still do think that this show needs a real villain. And with Tywin and Joffrey now dead, that does worry me. I think they've done a good job of making her more sympathetic. Um, but I, I still th- I still see her as a... You know, she's on Arya's list, so she's on my list, too. Um, And while it seems like the flashback we get at the beginning of the season do help contextualize some of her decisions, I mean, she's just kind of terrible. (laughs) And, you know, uh, obviously she's been made very hard by the circumstances and the choices in her life. Um, So I'm interested in her, but I don't... and And I sympathize with moments. I can, you know, see where she's coming from and appreciate her choices. But that doesn't mean that I want her to, like, win as it goes, as it were. What do you think, I would, Yeah, I would say, yeah, I don't think that they're angling for uh, for, for sympathy for, for Cersei's character. I feel like they, that they, maybe they felt like they put her so far back um, in the evil direction that they kind of wanted people to have a reason to not, not necessarily sympathize, but just to understand her and her motivation and where she's coming from and maybe kind of come to terms with why is she like this? Like, she's not just like Joffrey, like just a little shit or whatever. She's not just like a bad person. She's somebody who's had certain circumstances in her life, make her the way she is. Like she's a brat, even when we meet her as a kid, but the point is, I think, to kind of just get get a little bit more understanding behind this character who we all don't like and kind of be putting her putting her her head in her frame of reference a little bit. 
I don't know. I kind of feel like ever since King Joffrey died, the writers, at least a show that I'm watching, has tried to slowly make us sympathize for a character. And in this specific episode, her youngest son, who's now the king, actually tries to convince her to go back home because when he's having a conversation with his now wife, the queen, Marjorie, she, he, sorry, he tells her that my mom was never happy in King's Landing. And then Marjorie sort of like in her own subtle conniving way convinces him to try to convince her to go back home because that's the only place where she can be happy because she can't trust anybody at King's Landing. So we do still get somewhat of a backstory about her as a person before she came to King's Landing. And I kind of do feel like we've been slowly seeing a progression with the writer trying to make us sympathize for her character. And I'm not, and, you know, she is still a human, like, you know, she lost her son, she lost her dad, like, but at the same time, she is Cersei Lannister, you know, and she, I mean, she has a doctor working in her basement, like sort of like her own Dr. Frankenstein, who's doing God knows what to some poor, I'm assuming man, maybe the mountain, like performing these gruesome experiments on this person. Like, it's just like really weird how, it's hard. I guess I, I give them props for striking a balance of showing that side of her and yet showing her has Cersei Lannister who has this crazy doctor in the basement experimenting on people in the most horrific ways possible. <laughs> well, and I think they also make sure to they, I don't think they're steering away from her unlikable traits either. Um, so they're they're maybe tempering it more, balancing things more. But she still is hell bent on having Tyrion one of most people's favorite characters uh killed and gruesomely so she's hunt you know sent out people hunting to kill anybody who might be her brother uh so i th by still emphasizing some of these other you know less fan favorite -y kind of moves um i think that's helping to keep her from going too cuddly Mm -hmm. Well, you know what's funny is this show proves why people should not get married. <laughs> it's like the worst <laughs> thing you can do in your life. Marriage for Alliance has been the forefront of the series since the very first episode when Robert asked Ned to allow Sansa to marry Joffrey. It's been a reoccurring theme. And it's, it's interesting how they forge these alliances, which promise fortune, security, and great power, greater power. And... What I find interesting about this is that it, it also implies or emphasizes one simple fact, and it's that an entire generation of these eligible bachelors and future first ladies are basically just pawns in this really sick, never-ending game that seems to bring on more misery than happiness to everyone involved. And I, I kind of feel like the, if someone uses their son and their daughter for some kind of arranged marriage, it's because their household has a weakness. But it's strange how so they're going to forge an alliance by having so-and-so's son marry so-and-so daughter so they can technically become stronger, but the two households hate each other. So therefore, it's it's a very strange alliance because it's not really an alliance. Like in the case of like Marjorie and Tommen, I mean, she clearly hates Marjorie. Marjorie clearly has dagger eyes for, for Cersei. You know, Jamie's out on the run to go bring his daughter back home because he wants to go rescue her. I mean, this can't end well for either side. So it just, it just seems like the whole idea of bringing these people together and marrying them is kind of this, this, I don't know, the word's not naive. The, what is the word I'm looking for? It's, um, it's like this false hope. It's, it's like, it's trying to resolve a problem in the now, but you know, it's not really a solution 
moving forward. Like it's just a. Well, I think we might be looking at it differently. Um, if we had Sansa, you know, set to marry someone who, you know, wasn't the worst, um, you know, Ramsey, Ramsey Bolton is one of the most vile people that's been on the show so far. And that's not saying nothing. That's, you know, congratulations, Mr. Bolton. That's a rather impressive feat. Um, if, you know, cause, cause the marriages we see here are the arranged marriage with, uh, Marjorie and Tom and, and then also with Marcella and, um, one the, you know, the, the princeling, I don't know the right term from Dorne, um, is those are both being viewed and being discussed through the lens of Cersei, who's very paranoid. And um, I don't know that we can really necessarily trust her, um, her perspective on this. I would imagine, you know, get Jamie and, um, and Marjorie on the same page. And that could be a very strong alliance. That could be, you know, the, but, but Cersei, because of Cersei and her paranoia, you know, fueled by that, that, encounter we saw at the beginning of the season that's a different conversation but she has every right to be paranoid i mean put aside the flashback that we get two episodes ago in which we had the witch tell her prophecy i mean marjorie is sort of like the black widow of the series i mean before king joffrey didn't she marry someone else who also died oh yes she was married to renly <laughs> so yeah. And you're telling me she has no reason to be paranoid? <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> I don't think the issue is uh, Marjorie. I think that shows Marjorie is a survivor. But um, I think she just doesn't like Marjorie because Marjorie is smart and Mar Marjorie is cunning. And uh, Marjorie is a little too similar to Cersei for Cersei to like her. At least that's where, what I see. What do, what do you think, Mike? Um, yeah, so I think I think Marjorie is even is actually one of the probably one of the first people uh, Cersei's met who's actually better at the game than she is, because though Marjorie is is just as good at uh, manipulating people and using her sexuality to get ahead, uh, she's also always appears likable and always appears sympathetic. She never appears hard and unlikable like uh, Cersei does. You know, whether to the viewers or to the people in King's Landing. And she's younger and she's prettier. So I think there's a few different reasons why why Cersei sees Marjorie as such a threat. Um, not the least of which, obviously, is that she was angling to uh, marry not one, but two of her sons. Now, do you think um, do you think this could be a fruitful uh, pairing between Tommen and Marjorie? If Cersei, you know, is, is she right to be so paranoid? Yes, she's absolutely right to be so paranoid because uh, this this alliance is going to be very fruitful for Marjorie, probably, but not so fruitful for the Lannisters at this point. Uh, they can use it to wield a little bit more power with um, the Tyrell's influence, but otherwise, for the, like earlier when Marjorie was set to wed uh, Joffrey, it, it was a much more equal partnership. Now it feels like the power balance is really slipping over to the Tyrell side. I don't know. I completely disagree. I don't think she has the advantage. Like, I, I do agree that she is prettier and younger and people like her more, but I don't think she's smarter than Cersei. I think the only way she will have the advantage is, is if she does get pregnant. Because, I don't know, I just kind of feel like this is going to be a short-lived alliance and a short-lived marriage. And I, I do know we have the prophecy that her two children, her three children will die. Joffrey already died. And then we have her daughter, Mycela, and we have Tommen. And they're still alive. There's a good chance that one of them will die. But if King 
Tommen dies, she's not going to have control and power over King's Landing. Someone's just going to come along and kill her and or something else. I, I think she needs to have a, a, a child in order for her to actually have true power. And it, that is something that's actually mentioned in this episode. Clearly, she wants to have the baby. So she knows that she will not have the advantage until she is pregnant and has a baby to like a grandchild for Cersei and Jamie or not Jamie. Well, is, wait, is it Jamie? Would Jamie be the granddad? Well, he'd be great uncle, technically. Well, he'd actually be grandfather, but, the but secret, on paper. The secret great uncle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He would be, everybody would say great uncle, but it would actually be grandson. Right. Okay, exactly. <laughs> the problem with Marjorie is she is, I think, pushing her limits. And, like, the way she's acting towards Cersei, like, clearly she's trying to antagonize her. And Cersei's kind of... She has an opposite approach where she's actually being uber kind to Marjorie at this point in time. And I think it's going to bite her in the ass moving forward. Like, because it, it becomes so clear what her true intentions are and what she actually thinks of the Queen Mutter. Whereas Cersei is playing a different game. It's like Cersei's actually changing her style of being conniving and, and her, her whole gameplay is completely changed. She's doing a 360 here with Marjorie. And I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I just think Cersei is way smarter than Marjorie is. I think Marjorie's mom is probably smarter than Cersei. And if she was still at King's Landing, then she would be doing a better job of controlling Marjorie in the situation. But I think now that she's left King's Landing, good luck, Marjorie, because yeah. I don't think you're going to last very long. And that's to, to prevent a couple emails. That's the grandmother, the Queen of Thorns, um, is... Uh... Marjorie's grandmother. Her mother is actually very nice, but Marjorie takes after her grandmother. Um, well, how do yeah. we know it's not really her grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> Easier to fake paternity than maternity, um, especially in the, those days. But let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we, we've been talking with all these marriages. Why don't we talk about the other one? And, and that's Sansa and uh, Ramsay. So how, I mean, this is a, you know, a significant change from the books. I believe as i understand it this is either a fast forward or this is not in the books but the the more significant change for the books um is just a necessity of television and that's at this point in the books uh theon just is completely unrecognizable he just he he's been mutilated he looks like he is a he is reek like so sansa if she saw him would not be able to see that that was theon she would not recognize him. It would not be an issue. So when Sansa is hanging out at Winterfell and Theon is there or Reek is there, there's going to be recognition and that could theoretically lead to a number of different stories, uh, story options. Do you think this is going to come up and what are you anticipating? Are you excited about that? Or are you leery of getting back into Reek territory? Oh my God, as someone who hasn't read the book in my review, I wrote that that is a wild card. The fact that Theon Greyjoy is there and they will finally reunite, that is a wild card here. Because the last time I remember him and Sansa in the same scene was way back in like, what, season one, season two, maybe? Back mm -hmm. when the Stark family were still alive, like the majority of them. Yeah. Um, so I think that's going to be the wild card. I wonder... I, I'm really curious to see what exactly happens with Theon Greyjoy, because clearly, even though he's still somewhat in the shadows and in the background, like, you know, he is Theon Greyjoy, but he's no longer primary character. Like, he doesn't even have lines of dialogue, I don't think, in this episode. Um, I think he's a wild card. 
But uh, it's it's interesting because, okay, clearly Sansa does not want to marry this dude, right? I mean, he his dad, Roos, is responsible for killing Rob Stark and also indirectly killing her mom, right? If I'm not mistaken. Like he is he is he to blame? Wait. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well he made the he made the deal with uh gosh, the guy who, who runs the twins. I can't remember his name. Walder but Frey. The guy who was who was Walder Frey. Yeah. He he made yeah, he cut the deal with Walder Frey and the Lannisters. So yeah, he's he's the prime traitor of their of like the Northerners. You know what's so funny, Kate? <laughs> like thinking back on previous episodes, I'm like, can it get worse for Sansa? I mean, she married King Joffrey. Like everything has happened to her. I'm like, it actually, and now she's with Little Little Finger. I'm like, it can't get worse. And no, it got worse this week. Oh my god! Holy yep. shit! Yep. Yep. Well, Holy I, shit. and and again to go back to the this difference with Reek and Theon in the books and the show on a show on a TV show. <laughs> you need you need to be able to identify the actor and recognize him. You're not going to recast the role, and so that leads to different narrative situations. Unless, unless you're Dario Naharis. Yeah, then we just don't talk <laughs> about it. You know, <laughs> what, what do you think about this, uh, Mike? Do you think it's uh, are you, are you excited to get you know because we got to remember that Theon is gone basically. Yara came to save him, and he wouldn't go because he's not Theon anymore. He's Reek. Is he going to be able to come back to himself enough to talk to Sansa? I think I think that's where we're going with this. If I had to guess, I think where we're going with this is um, a potential ally with for for Sansa. Even though when when she fi- does finally find out who he is, she's going to hate him almost as much, if not quite as much, as Ramsay, because. As far as she knows, Theon is responsible for the deaths of her two younger brothers. But he can also he's also one of the only people who knows that her two her two little brothers aren't actually dead. So I think once they do finally come into contact, I think he's going to reveal that information to her, and I think it's going to spark a little bit of an alliance. Uh I don't know where that's gonna go. The, of course the the reverse scenario would be that he just sees her as a threat and tries to kill her, but I don't think they're going that way. I oh think no! They try and go a better, a better storytelling perspective for it. I don't think Reek can hurt a fly at this point in time. He's completely mentally destroyed. But the thing, the thing that's funny about this, okay, so when she returns to Winterfell, Littlefinger tries to convince her that she needs to marry Ramsay, right? And of course, he has this like he's not really concerned for her well-being, but he's you know a really good actor and he wants her to marry. Uh, the Lord Ramsay is now a lord, right? He's no longer a bastard because it's also going to help benefit him in the long run. And so I really do like his conversation because the, despite the fact that he's one of the most, what's the, how do you, there, there are no words to describe Littlefinger, okay? He's Con- one of the most, conniving, I would, conniving. no, not even. He's one of the most silence for two seconds because we can't describe how horrible this person is, okay? But he says, what he says is actually true. He says, you'll be running your entire life. And you've been a bystander to tragedy from the day they executed your dad. Stop being a bystander. This is something I've been saying on the podcast for three years. Stop being a fucking bystander. Stop running. There is no justice in the world. Not unless we make it. You loved your family. Avenge them. So I kind of feel like Littlefinger, you're like the worst person I've ever seen on screen. But I kind of like, 
I kind of like, I kind of like, I'm agreeing with you because you're pretty much saying everything I've been saying for three years now, podcasting. Yes, fucking do something already, Sansa. Marry this stupid bastard and avenge your family because you, you now have, you're placed in a position now where you can have some kind of power and avenge your family. And what's really interesting about this episode is it's very brief, but we get this very brief scene in which she's walking and this old lady passes her by and she tells Sansa, we will always remember, remember the North. And so the Stark family has their respect no matter what happened. People will never forget Ned Stark and or the Stark name. And if she rises back to power, it would be a completely different situation being back at Winterfell as opposed to her rising to power to some degree by marrying King Joffrey at King's Landing. That's a whole different scenario. So it's interesting how we're going to see sort of like a replay of her storyline this year. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mirror, I think, her storyline from last season, but it's going to be completely different because this time around, she will have an advantage. See, but here's the thing, uh, Ricky, is that that notion of her avenging her family um, should be really satisfying, except that she is a puppet of Littlefinger, who we all know is the reason her family is in danger in the first place. Littlefinger orchestrated everything. But that's or- what that's the beauty of the irony. Because oh, no, yes, it's, no, no because but it's, it's not gonna, satisfying it's, then. If she's going to avenge her family, she needs to stab Littlefinger. And if that right, happens, I, then I, I, I take it she, back. I think that will happen. I think she's going to get revenge on Roose Bolton and Littlefinger. And that's why I think it's so ironic and funny that that he is giving her this advice. He is bringing her to Winterfell. He is arranging the marriage. And I think at the end of the day, it's what is going to bring him down. It, it is the reason why we are finally going to see Peter. Baelish. I was going to say Peter Dinklish. <laughs> <laughs> like he's finally going to die. Something terrible is going to happen to this character. And I just kind of feel like this is going to be the Sansa that I want to, I personally want to see. It's going to be the Sansa who rises up, takes control, and stabs Littlefinger in the eye. If that's going to happen, though, she's very much out of her league um, because she's next to the ultimate schemer. And so to have her go from, on the whole, a very passive character, you know, by necessity, she didn't really have any opportunity to act out or to, to... she didn't have any agency. There wasn't. A, it's not like she was choosing to be passive. She didn't really have a choice earlier on in her arc. Um, but to take her from from that, where her only form of protest is praying, and uh, and and not letting Joffrey see her react when he did these horrible things to her, um, to take her from that to having to outwit Littlefinger, it just seems like it's a bit of a leap. I don't know. You, you, you know. you know why I think it's going to happen? Because I think there's a huge difference between Ramsay and King Joffrey. And King King Joffrey never really gave a shit about Sansa. He never really thought she was beautiful. He never really even wanted to sleep with her. He just, like, he married her because he had to marry her. I think Ramsay actually is attracted to Sansa. And despite the fact that he's a horrible person and just as crazy as King Joffrey, he will do whatever it takes to make his 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 dad happy. And I actually think he's going to treat her way differently than, say, King Joffrey treated Sansa. I don't think he's actually going to terrify Sansa. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if she actually has some kind of spell over him. This is what I'm I'm assuming. I'm not assuming. This is what <laughs> I'm predicting. Okay, and I could be completely wrong because I haven't read the books. But at the same time, 
I heard that they are going in a totally different direction from the books. And you, you just, just, just before you were talking about it, you couldn't remember if in the books or not, she goes back to, to Winterfell and it's put in this situation. If there's one thing I know about the books is in the books, there is an additional character who has not been included in the TV show. She made a cameo appearance, I think way back in season one. And she is the character who actually marries Ramsey in the books. And this is not a spoiler because they're not doing it. And she poses Arya Stark, and that's how she marries him. They are eliminating that storyline, and they're replacing it with this new storyline. So anything can happen because they're not going by what happens in the books because clearly this does not happen in the books. Do you have any thoughts on this, Mike? Um, I, I, have, a, I, I have a few different thoughts, I guess. Um, I, I can kind of see uh, from a storytelling perspective why they might the, – the, po- the poetry of um, Littlefinger setting up his own demise or downfall with Sansa. But I think if that is coming, I think it's coming a long way down the line. I think, I don't think Littlefinger goes out of the show um, or out of the story until probably season seven. I think Littlefinger's eventual downfall, assuming it's coming, is going to come very, very close to the end. But I, I do think that Sansa has, um, will, will be put into a position of a lot, a lot stronger authority uh particularly again if she does find herself allied with Theon and I think that might be finally the thing that starts to pull Theon back into being uh Theon Mike I need to ask you a question do you know that they're only doing seven seasons of the Game of Thrones a TV show I know that that's supposed to be the case yes okay so if that is supposed to be the case and they are only doing seven seasons of the TV show you're saying that Littlefinger is going to die in the last season that that would be my guess. I think a little or his downfall or whatever. Assuming that's coming, I don't think it's coming for a long time. Uh, I think it's Sansa's still got a lot to learn before she has before she gets the um, ability to play at Littlefinger's level. See, I don't think so because he's pulling all the strings and he's the one that's causing so many problems that if he dies in season seven, I mean he's going to continue to cause problems. I I just don't see it. I think he's going to die a lot sooner. And last week, I think we talked about this last week, if not the week before, were. It was in reference to the opening flashback when the witch tells Cersei her prophecy and she says someone younger and more beautiful would take your place. And the obvious pick would be Marjorie. And then a lot of people believe it to be Daenerys. And I don't think it's either. I think it's most likely Sansa Stark. I'm like, from from someone trying to get into the head of George R.R. Martin and knowing that he loves his female characters and his outcasts and just seeing all of the terrible things that has happened to Sansa Stark over the years, especially the fact that she has been coupled with the three most horrible people on the planet, I think she's going to be the one that rises to power and takes the Iron Throne at the end of the TV series. Amen, I called it. (laughs) Well, before we get off of Sansa completely, um, I'll just say that I am very much uh, heartened with what's going on there because I know that Brienne is headed that way. Um, I loved what we got with Brienne this week. The flashback was great getting another, you know, just a little nod to Renly and an explanation for Brienne's attachment to him, not just being some, you know, childish crush on, on a man that she knows is gay, uh, but having this very strong personal um, memory that, you know, have to have that be the basis of that connection. I thought was great. And uh, also, you know, I like to see pod, you know, get a little, uh, one up there. So if if he's got Brienne teaching him, he could become, I mean, he's already pretty great, but he could become quite the badass before the end of the season. 
And I'm sure he can teach Brienne a few things himself. Oh, you know, absolutely. Being a ladies' man and all. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that was a little. That was a weird little throwaway thing they did with Pod uh, a while back. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think Pod is a very noble, very honorable character. So it's good that he's uh, partnered with with. Um, gosh, what the hell is happening in my head? Brienne. That he's partnered with Brienne. Uh, and I think that he also brings a little bit of lightness to what for her has become a very dark storyline. So that I think that yeah, I think that's a really strong pairing. And since we already we already know that he was valiant enough to um slay a Kingsguard to save uh Tyrion uh back towards the end of season two, uh, yeah, I think with with some training, he could become a very a very uh dangerous character, very powerful and dangerous character. You know what? That was the highlight for me this week was watching Brienne and her touching story, like her touching backstory, explaining why she decided to be on Renly's side. And also, like, that actress is amazing. She, she is amazing. Has a, like, her performance is incredible, especially in this episode. And what I love about her is you can, I think you can pair her up with anyone else on the show and it would be incredible. Be it Podrick. Jamie, Tyrion, you can pair her up with what's his face, um, Slint, and we would all of a sudden like Slint a lot better. Well, not a lot better. We would all of a sudden start liking Slint. Like, just something about this actress. Like, I just love her, and I absolutely love that scene. And um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that if Pod does get a little training and he learns how to like fight and use a sword properly then that just means we're going to see some epic action set piece in which he comes to save the day. It's going to be mind-blowing, and everyone's going to be raving about it and writing stories about it online. <laughs> I look forward to that. Um, let's touch base with uh, North of the Wall while we're up in the north talking about the Starks. Uh, what do you think about Jon Snow decapitating Slint? Was it the right move? Was he, was he being his father's son there? Well, if you believe that Ned is his father. Um, I think I think that there's a couple of interesting parallels there. First of all, is the yeah, like you said, the parallel between uh, Jon Snow decapitating uh, Yano Slint and his father decapitating the suspected traitor of the Night's Watch back in the first episode. Uh, there's also a parallel there between him and uh, Daenerys, who are both in power and have both just recently ordered someone who may or may not have, you know, maybe should or shouldn't have been executed. In John's case, I think he made the right call. Daenerys was a little more debatable, but I think John did make the right call. I think it makes him look divisive, and it makes him look respectable to to uh, a group of people who needs who he needs to have unadulterated uh, respect and uh, support from. I think if he cut, I think if he cut Yano Slint a break, I think it would have hurt him and hurt his uh, men's perception of him. I think he definitely made the right call, and I'm very glad to see Yano Slint uh, dead. Well, and it's not even just that. Up at the wall, they're dealing with very serious shit. <laughs> they got the the White Walkers coming, and like John knows what's on the other side of the wall. He knows what is lurking, and you can't have someone, especially someone theoretically in a leadership position who is going to be afraid and hide under a table and disobey commands. It's just, that is going to get more people killed. So I, I hadn't thought of that parallel to Danny, but especially with, you know, both Janos and the, the, the character from last week asking 
for mercy, specifically asking for mercy um, with their last breaths. Um, it's it's a very clear parallel. I feel kind of like an idiot for not having thought of it. Uh, any thoughts, Ricky, on uh, Yanos and, and John? Yeah, clearly there there is a parallel, but there is a huge difference between Danny's decision and John's decision in that John's decision was just as hard for him as a person making a decision to execute someone, and he actually does it himself. Like, he takes a sword and decapitates the guy, whereas Daenerys has someone else do it for her. But the difference is that Slint is a kind of person that no one really cares about and or likes, or has the slave represents everyone who stood there and watched her do this to this man, right? So the the the, the difference is you're watching da- Daenerys, Danny, kill a man who is just like you, who represents what you are. So it's kind of like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a stab. To, it's it's like it's like an attack to them personally. Or has Slint is just Slint, and it's his own fault. Like he did something stupid, and he made the wrong call. Clearly, and he's going to forever regret it because now he's dead, and his head's like God knows where. But um, but I think Jon Snow needs to decapitate Ollie and get rid of that character because I think that character is trouble. Alistair? No, Ollie. Ollie. Oh, Ollie. Isn't Ollie the little guy who killed the Egret? Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah, He's man. A... No, Sir Sir Alistair? No, that he made the right call. Putting Sir Alistair in charge, making him his right-hand man or whatever power he gave him, right call. Because Sir Alistair still has honor, and clearly he respects Jon Snow, even though he wants his position. I think they're going to form an interesting alliance, and they're going to – he's only going to make Jon Snow stronger, and Jon Snow ne- knows this. But that kid, Ollie – Man, I don't know if you've been watching closely, but there's something weird about that kid. Like, I do not trust him at all. That is interesting. I'm going to have to That's start. Weird. Yeah, I never got that vibe. Really? You know, not even a little. Wow. Okay. Huh. Okay. I do not trust Ollie. Do not okay. trust him. Maybe Ollie, you. maybe Ollie looks like a guy who bullied you when you were a kid or something. No, man. Projection or something. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, he seems like a pretty innocent character to me. I don't really see. I see Ollie as a pretty, pretty decent kid. I don't. He doesn't seem like a bad guy to me. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit more about Arya and the House of Black and White here before we run out of time. Um, we talked about the religious aspect of it, but I mean, watching her say goodbye to the last little vestiges of her past was hard. And when she's holding needle, I was like, "Don't you dare! Do not you dare!" Drop that in the in the lake. That is Valyrian steel. That is from your brother. I was I was getting pretty emotional. How about you guys? Oh, I I I, I don't really like this storyline that much for Arya. Neither I, I. I don't really know what. To be honest, I don't really know what to think of this storyline. I was really excited for it last year when she's leaving, and it's like, oh wow, she's going out of the out of Dorne. I mean, out of uh, Westeros, and she's gonna be in Dorne where. She can kind of grow strong outside of all the things that have been keeping her back. But I really, I don't, I really am not interested at all in the House of Black and White, which I, I would say this is the first time I don't care uh, what's going on with Arya. I did like that little touch, though. The, the touch where she's trying to say goodbye to her past and she buries um, Needle in the rocks rather than throwing it away. I thought that was a really nice touch. And it's an interesting way for her to sort of say goodbye to herself. But yeah, I'm, I'm, this House of Black and White stuff, I really don't know about this. And I, I don't, 
I, I don't know where it's going. I hope it gets more interesting, though. I completely disagree with both of you. How was it interesting that she's supposed to get rid of her past and forget her past, but she doesn't actually forget her past? Because the only thing she carries that's really a part of her, that really reminds her that she is Arya Stark, is the sword needle, which she doesn't get rid of. She doesn't throw it into the river. She hides it, which means we know from TV watchers, based on TV tropes, that the sword is going to come back. She's going to reunite with Needle. It's not going to be a big shocking surprise. And we're just going to have to sit around and wait for it. And I do not find that interesting. I find, I feel I completely agree with you, Mike, that I'm not interested in her storyline at all this year. Um, last week with the House of Black and White, which is what the episode was titled, we had a bunch of scenes of Arya walking around doing nothing. Like she was reading the, off the names on her list once again, which we've seen her do multiple times. She arrives at the house in black and white. She knocks on the wrong door and or the wrong side of the door and they refuse to let her in. So we get to spend 20 minutes of watching her do nothing just to have her return back to the house of black and white and knock on the door again just so they can finally let her in. Like why? It's, it's too much wasted screen time in a TV show that has way too many characters to follow, in my opinion. And in this episode, we get shots of her sweeping. Like, I totally understand, Arya, your frustration, because I'm frustrated also watching these scenes. You used to be my favorite or second favorite character, and now I'm not interested in anything to do with your storyline whatsoever this season at all. Completely agree with you on that point, uh, part. Okay, well, I guess I'll be the one standing up for it then, uh, because I think it's this is a crucial step for her. She's filled with rage. We just saw her get darker and darker all through the last season, and she's going to be consumed by it. And so to instead do her best to let go of that and release that. I mean, we know because she's Arya and she's one of the main characters, um, and she likely isn't going anywhere, at least until she has a chance to intersect with some other main characters again. If she were to just leave the show right now, that wouldn't change anything for the other characters. So that can't happen, um, at least until she inter intersects with somebody else who knows who she is. Um, and so that's not a surprise. We know that she's going to, you know, end up back in Westeros eventually or, or end up um, with Danny or something. So that's not a surprise when she when, you know, when she hides Needle, like this notion that Needle will be back. That's again, that's not a surprise to me. That just seems natural with what they've shown us so far. Um, but she needs to come to an understanding of herself and also just life because she's had so much tragedy and so much pain in her short life so far that she's really screwed up. And so to, to be at the house of black and white, where the first thing she needs to accept, she needs to let go of her past and let go of that anger and again, gain an understanding and a respect for death and what death is. And for somebody that we've already seen, you know, kill small children and, stab someone with glee i think that's probably a good thing for her right but you see the thing is now when we started a podcast we specifically wanted someone who's read the books and someone who hasn't read the books we get two different point of views of the episode we watch i don't know if that is based on your insight of the character in the book but for me watching the tv show i don't see it like maybe that is what they're going to do with her character moving forward and maybe that's the whole point in the storyline but so far two episodes spent with her at the house of black and white, I just don't see much of progression of her character. And for her to have a change of heart and not become this darker person, not to like go into the dark side, 
Um, there are other ways you can do it, which involves her in the world and surrounded by the characters who we are also following. Because like you said, Kate, if she were to die or be removed from the season or the TV show today, it wouldn't change anything else overall in the storyline. And I think that's I think that's problematic. So they need to sort of speed it up. That's all I'm saying. They need to speed it up. We don't need to see shots of Arya brooming the floor or walking around the town just to go back and knock at a door. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think they've been wasting – I think they're wasting a lot of time with Arya. I, I think it would be better to do sort of what they did with um, Bran last year, uh, condense her role a bit, but make what – when she is on the screen, make it count. Because, yeah, there's been her – her storyline feels like it was just spinning its spinning its wheels for two episodes, uh, and it was it was a lot of screen time. But we got finally we got that little bit at the end with her and the sword. And I think what I'm predicting from that is that they're trying to they're going they're showing us the audience that while Arya is going to uh, stop using her name and become one of the faceless men. Um, She's not, I don't think, I think what they're trying to show us is that she wants the skills they can teach her, but she isn't completely willing to let go of her past like some of the other people in that place. And I think that may cause her to come into conflict uh, with Jake and Hogar or Hagar or whatever uh, towards the end of the season. I think he's going to catch, he's going to train her. They're going to do whatever they do with her, but she's, he's going to catch on eventually that she's not willing to let go. And then I think she's going to leave the Faceless Men um, towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, our, we're going to have to have our listeners chime in with their thoughts on, on this, on Ollie as well. Um, and because uh, that's a very interesting, different perspective from the different, you know, I, I don't, I think I'm basing it on the on the show, not the books, but who knows? You can't always, you know, you don't always know what your subconscious is, how your subconscious is shading it or how my knowledge of the books is shading it. Um, the last thing I got to mention, so glad to see Sir Jorah back. Uh, were you guys surprised when he popped up? The last thing you're going to mention. <laughs> Whoa, we have a whole like 20 minutes here to talk about Tyrion. No, we don't. We have five minutes to talk about what? Tyrion. 55 <laughs> minutes, man. I wasn't, I wasn't surprised to see uh, Jorah come back, but that's because I know the actor's name who played him. <laughs> And he popped up in the opening credits, which is always a good indicator of who's going to be in the episode. If you know the actors, and I know Ian Glenn is uh, Jorah Mormont, so it said, and Ian Glenn, it was like, okay, he's going to show up at some point. I don't know what he's going to do, but you know he's going to pop up at some point because they don't put them in the credits otherwise. I love how Tyrion tells Varys that he's like, I need to talk to someone with hair. Like, their <laughs> whole their whole buddy-buddy road trip routine is just amazing it's like the highlight of my week right now i love it but what i find interesting about this episode we've talked about this many times in the past about us speculating on who Tyrion really is and who his parents really are and you just mentioned Jon snow is ned stark really his dad in this episode so he ends up somewhere in like the the center of like the town and there's a red priestess i believe right Mm-hmm. and she's preaching and what have you. And then she looks over and she sees Tyrion and she can't look away from Tyrion. So clearly it's like she senses something about him. And clearly he's heading to go like, you know, to go um, to go meet Daenerys. And we all assume that he and Daenerys are going to form an alliance and he's going to be her right hand man. And he's going to help guide her to victory, et cetera, et cetera. But this whole entire episode just really reinforced my beliefs that he is more than what he seems to be. Like he can be 
the sibling of Daenerys. I mean, I think I don't think that was the interpretation you were supposed to take from that. I think it was supposed to be his mockery of all things mystical because he's never really had any experience with anything mystical. And then her looking at him like that kind of shows that she is more than just the charlatan that he's painting her to be. To He's like, oh, I've got her figured out. She's just a charlatan, blah, blah, blah. And then we see that she can actually tell, like she knows that he's talking shit all the way from across the crowd. Wow. She I knows read exactly it, what he's saying. I read it completely. Uh, and it forces him to re, to, it forces him to have to accept that maybe he's not as, wise as he once thought because things are a lot different here and maybe all the things he's been dismissing are not necessarily the hogwash that he thought they were you see i read it like she noticed him and she sees something in him like she can see to his future and she knows that he is going to play a big role moving forward and he's most likely of royalty and and whatnot and i don't know i just kind of read it completely the wrong way like i read it like she was reading him like he was a great person not like he was mocking her that's interesting maybe you're right i don't know the part hey, of the tiebreaker tiebreaker well i'm with i'm with you mike on this one uh definitely i took that as um a little bit just a moment of comeuppance and if he's gonna be around more uh, of the red priests or around Danny, he's going to have to start believing in magic because magic is real in, uh, in, in this world and specifically the, the blood magic of the red priests. But um... speaking of magic, we also just got to quickly mention that Brienne does mention the fact that although the shadow did kill Renly, she saw the shadow as having a face of Stannis Baratheon. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yep. So that means that, like, this is what I'm confused. Okay, this is what I'm trying to figure out here. So, if Brienne and Pod are after Sansa, who's now at Winterfell chasing after Littlefinger and Sansa, right? And they're gonna encounter Theon Greyjoy, the Boltons. Where does Stannis come into the picture? Stannis wants to take back the North from right, but that's the Boltons. So Stannis is over. Yeah, he'll, so he'll be there eventually. Yeah, he'll be there eventually, so they can come into contact at that point. But then she's going to be Ideally, stuck between you know, two huge armies. She's going to have to make a well, decision. I don't think she really cares. Yeah, I don't think she really cares which army she's caught between. I think she just wants a chance at Stannis, and I think her chance might come. But as we saw with uh, O'Baron last year, just because we're rooting for a noble character doesn't mean they're going to get what they want. Okay, yeah. The the Tyrion scene that I wanted to specifically call out is actually the the exchange with the with the prostitute because I thought that that was actually a really nice scene and moment and the performance from from Dinklage as Tyrion realizes that he he can't it's too soon since Shay and he still is trying to process and deal with all of that um thought it was a really nice moment yeah I agree it was. That's my final thought on the episode. Do you guys have any final thoughts on uh, High Sparrow, Mike? Uh, just that I thought, I, I was thinking initially, like I mentioned off air to you guys, I, I actually thought, or I was worried, even though I don't think Tyrion's going to die, I think he still has a lot to do. Uh, I was worried for a moment when uh, Ian Glenn was coming up behind him, or I mean Jorah Mormont was coming up behind him. I was thinking, I was worried he was going to hang him. That's, that was the, what I was worried about because it looked like he's standing on the edge. There's the rope, and then it's like, uh oh, 
Like I actually mm-hmm. was worried for a moment, even though it seemed likely I was worried that he was going to just put the rope around his neck and, and kick him off. Mike, let me light up a fire and tell you the future. Cause I can see into the future and I see Tyrion riding a dragon. Okay. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> I see Arya riding a dragon. To be maybe, honest. maybe Arya, Tyrion, Daenerys, Jon Snow. I don't know. Tyrion. How many? Are there more dragons? One of those people. I think, yeah, I think Arya is going back to Westeros one day. I think she's going back on a dragon. Okay. Uh, Just three. Just the three, I think. So I think Arya is going on a dragon. Yeah, but I don't know. I kind of see, I can kind of picture the Starks on direwolves instead. You know, we still have a few direwolves. (laughs) Oh, no. We're not, we're not, we don't ride direwolves into battle as far as I know. Yeah. Well, sorry? We never saw anything happen to Nymeria. Exactly. And also, there's still a missing Stark ch- child. Like, have you seen the Stark child anywhere? <laughs> Put out a missing poster on, on, like, on yeah. the milk cartons. Put a missing poster out on the milk cartons. We still have not seen him in like four years. He's somewhere. <laughs> he's in a village having <laughs> um, a normal childhood. If he's not know, on the show, right? it can only be a good thing. I know. Um, the yeah, last hopefully. thing. I- Having a good time. The last thing I want to mention is the method of torture and execution that the Boltons prefer to use, which is to use a blade to remove layers of a victim's skin, exposing nerve and muscle tissue. Disgusting. Disgusting. Boltons, you are almost as bad as Littlefinger. Almost. It's super gross. Yeah, the the that's their that's their sigil is that's their sigil as well. The yeah. flayed man is there is actually their their uh, sigil or coat of arms or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. it's something they take very, very, very seriously. It is disturbing to me when we go up to Winterfell in the in the opening credits and the flayed man is all over the place. I'm like, you get your you get your flayed man sigil out of Winterfell, you bastards. I feel strongly about this. From my understanding, the Stark family made it illegal for them to use that form of torture. But now that they're t- technically in control of the North, they they're going back to, to their, like, century-old pre- practice. But going back to Roos Bolton really quick before we end the podcast, I like how even though his son decides to use this form of torture and he does collect the quote-unquote taxes despite the fact that he brings back, a you know, a, a bunch of, like, bodies home with him and he's batshit crazy and sadistic, he also warns him not to go too far. And I do like his conversation with his son where he says the best way to forge a lasting alliance isn't by peeling a man's skin off, it's by marriage. Which, to go full circle, leads me back to say that getting married is the worst thing you can do. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah, um, yeah. I think Ramsey is, uh, I think now that he's no, he's no longer a bastard, I think what, what Roos is trying to teach him is that now he is a real political figure, or is at least being shaped into one, you can't. You can't just. You can't just indulge all the sadistic pleasures all the time. Uh, he needs to put on a face for the outside world. He needs to be looked at as someone, not just someone to be feared, but also someone, hopefully one day to be respected. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I just don't want. Can't think of the political climate in which Ramsey Bolton is an upstanding member of the uh, leadership. That's just terrifying to me. So on that cheery thought, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Um, on the, in the same place they find you guys over on soundonsite.org, uh, only over in the game section mainly. Uh, I do a little bit of uh, writing for the TV section and film 
section from time to time as well, but mainly in the game section uh, where we're always doing interesting things and we have a new monthly theme every month. Um, this month we were doing something um, called Legendary Journeys Exploring Long-Form Gaming. And next month we have something else coming up, which I won't spoil yet, but, uh, you know, keep an eye on us. And Ricky, what else is going on at Sundance site this month? Uh, first of all, I also recommend that people check out Mike's reviews of the Game of Thrones video game, uh, which isn't very positive all the time, but you are writing reviews of each and every single chapter, correct? Yeah, that's that's actually really, really good point. Worth mentioning. Yeah, I forgot. I mean, I knew I, I didn't forget that I was doing it. I just didn't think to mention it as something relevant, which yeah, I am covering um, all of the Game of Thrones episodes of the game, which are voiced and acted and uh, by by the people on the show. It's endorsed by HBO and it is considered canon as far as the mythology goes. So, yeah, that's something um, you may also want to look into if you're a fan of the show. Mm -hmm. As for me, you can find me on Twitter, Sound on Site, where I usually just plug all the articles featured on our website and articles from my friends online. Uh, join us on Facebook and on Tumblr, Sound on Site, and uh, that's about it. You can also, of course, listen to my movie podcast that I do with Simon Howell, Sword of Cinema, and um, Kate and I do a Walking Dead podcast, and I do a gaming podcast as well called NX Press. So that's about it. And of course, you can find me uh, at Sound on Site. Right now, reviewing Orphan Black, um, but also, of course, hosting The Televerse, which is the TV podcast I co-host with Simon Howell. It goes up every Tuesday, or sometimes the wee hours of Wednesday, and uh, that covers all of TV and is insane, at least right now. I'm hoping that by uh, May, you know, at mid to late May, I'll finally get to breathe a little bit. But uh, there's a lot of great TV on right now, so we'd love to have you join the conversation. And you can also reach out on Twitter at The Televerse, or if you want to email, theteleverse at gmail.com. But you know we love talking with you guys, so send a tweet, post a comment at the website. Let's uh, let's let me know. Let's know what you think. I, I particularly, if I have to pick one, I want to know who else is on the evil Ollie bang bandwagon because that is just could be a lot of fun. <laughs> hey, can I just say something? Okay, uh, not so much on the Game of Thrones podcast because I'm I'm actually too scared to give out many of my predictions because I'm a non book reader. But with the Walking Dead podcast, every single time I make a prediction and or make a wish. It actually happens. But last week I was saying that they should make a Game of Thrones Too Many Cooks parody on, on YouTube. Or, uh, that was amazing. I saw it. Yeah. <gasps> I was going to mention that as well. And it happened. Yeah, did, you, did you see that, Kate? I, I'm going to be watching that right after we record because Ricky did send that to me. And yes, Ricky, it, appear, it appears your magic prediction powers uh, from the Walking Dead podcast have transferred over to Game of Thrones, at least in this instance. So now you just remember, great power, great responsibility. Right. And uh, well, that's why I shouldn't say things like, can it get worse for Sansa? Can she meet someone worse? <laughs> Clearly she can. But I'm just going to say, Tyrion riding dragons. That's it. Okay. Well, next week we'll be back to talk about episode four, The Sons of the Harpy. That's written by Dave Hill and directed by Mark Milet. So the same director as this episode, but an episode not written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, which is a pretty rare thing in the Game of Thrones uh, catalog. So we'll be back next week to talk about that. Thank you all for listening. You loved your family. Avenge them. You who walk in here with a coin you never earned. Who are you? What do you want from us? Justice. You have many enemies in Castle Black. And you're prepared for the consequences. All men must serve.
Sing. 